Section four of Woman in the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Woman in the Nineteenth Century and Kindred Papers Relating to the Sphere, Condition, and Duties of Women by Margaret Fuller. Section four. Woman in the Nineteenth Century. Part two. This morning I open the Boston Daily Mail and find in its poet's corner a translation of Schiller's Dignity of Woman. In the advertisement of a book on America I see in the table of contents this sequence, Republican Institutions, American Slavery, American Ladies. I open the Deutsche Schnellpost, published in New York, and find at the head of a column, Juden und Frauen Emancipation in Ungarn, Emancipation of Jews and Women in Hungary. The past year has seen action in the Rhode Island legislature to secure married women rights over their own property, where men showed that a very little examination of the subject could teach them much. An article in the Democratic Review on the same subject more largely considered, written by a woman, impelled, it is said, by glaring wrong to a distinguished friend, having shown the defects in the existing laws, and the state of opinion from which they spring. And on answer from the reverend old man, J. Q. Adams, in some respects the Phocian of his time, to an address made him by some ladies. To this last I shall again advert in another place. These symptoms of the times have come under my view quite accidentally. One who seeks may, each month or week, collect more. The numerous party, whose opinions are already labelled and adjusted too much to their minds to admit of any new light, strive, by lectures on some model woman of bride-like beauty and gentleness, by writing and lending little treatises, intended to mark out with precision the limits of woman's sphere and woman's mission to prevent other than the rightful shepherd from climbing the wall, or the flock from using any chance to go astray. Without enrolling ourselves at once on either side, let us look upon the subject from the best point of view which to-day offers. No better, it is to be feared, than a high house-top. A high hill-top, or at least a cathedral spire, would be desirable. It may well be an anti-slavery party that pleads for woman, if we consider merely that she does not hold property on equal terms with men, so that, if a husband dies without making a will, the wife, instead of taking at once his place as head of the family, inherits only a part of his fortune, often brought him by herself, as if she were a child, or ward only, not an equal partner. We will not speak of the innumerable instances in which profligate and idle men live upon the earnings of industrious wives or if the wives leave them and take with them the children, to perform the double duty of mother and father, follow from place to place, and threaten to rob them of the children, if deprived of the rights of a husband, as they call them, planting themselves in their poor lodgings, frightening them into paying tribute by taking from them the children, running into debt at the expense of these otherwise so overtasked helots. Such instances count up by scores within my own memory. I have seen the husband who had stained himself by a long course of low vice, till his wife was wearied from her heroic forgiveness, by finding that his treachery made it useless, and that if she would provide bread for herself and her children, she must be separate from his ill fame. 
I have known this man come to install himself in the chamber of a woman who loathed him, and say she should never take food without his company. I have known these men steal their children, whom they knew they had no means to maintain, take them into dissolute company, expose them to bodily danger, to frighten the poor woman, to whom it seems the fact that she alone had borne the pangs of their birth and nourished their infancy does not give an equal right to them. I do believe that this mode of kidnapping, and it is frequent enough in all classes of society, will be by the next age viewed as it is by heaven now, and that the man who avails himself of the shelter of men's laws to steal from a mother her own children, or arrogate any superior right in them, save that of superior virtue, will bear the stigma that he deserves, in common with him who steals grown men from their motherland, their hopes, and their homes. I said we will not speak of this now. Yet I have spoken, for the subject makes me feel too much. I could give instances that would startle the most vulgar and callous, but I will not, for the public opinion of their own sex is already against such men, and where cases of extreme tyranny are made known there is private action in the wife's favour. But she ought not to need this, nor, I think, can she long. Men must soon see that as, on their own ground, woman is the weaker party, she ought to have legal protection, which would make such oppression impossible. But I would not deal with atrocious instances, except in the way of illustration. Neither demand from men a partial redress in some one matter, but go to the root of the whole. If principles could be established, particulars would adjust themselves aright. Ascertain the true destiny of woman, give her legitimate hopes, and a standard within herself. Marriage and all other relations would by degrees be harmonized with these. But to return to the historical progress of this matter. Knowing that there exists in the minds of men a tone of feeling towards women as towards slaves, such as is expressed in the common phrase, tell that to women and children, that the infinite soul can only work through them in already ascertained limits, that the gift of reason, man's highest prerogative, is allotted to them in much lower degree, that they must be kept from mischief and melancholy by being constantly engaged in active labour, which is to be furnished and directed by those better able to think, etc., etc. We need not multiply instances, for who can review the experience of last week without recalling words which imply, whether in jest or earnest, these views, or views like these? Knowing this, can we wonder that many reformers think that measures are not likely to be taken in behalf of women unless their wishes could be publicly represented by women? That can never be necessary, cry the other side. All men are privately influenced by women. Each has his wife, sister, or female friends, and is too much biased by these relations to fail of representing their interests. And if this is not enough, let them propose and enforce their wishes with the pen. The beauty of home would be destroyed, the delicacy of the sex be violated, the dignity of halls of legislation degraded, by an attempt to introduce them there. Such duties are inconsistent with those of a mother. And then we have ludicrous pictures of ladies in hysterics at the polls, and senate chambers filled with cradles. But if, in reply, we admit as truth that woman seems destined by nature rather for the inner circle, we must add that the arrangements of civilized life have not been, as yet, such as to secure it to her. Her circle, if the duller, is not the quieter. If kept from excitement, she is not from drudgery. Not only the Indian squaw carries the burdens of the camp, but the favourites of Louis the Fourteenth accompany him in his journeys, 
and the washerwoman stands at her tub and carries home her work at all seasons, and in all states of health. Those who think the physical circumstances of woman would make a part in the affairs of national government unsuitable are by no means those who think it impossible for negresses to endure field-work, even during pregnancy, or for sempstresses to go through their killing labours. As to the use of the pen, there was quite as much opposition to woman's possessing herself of that help to free agency as there is now to her seizing on the rostrum or the desk, and she is likely to draw, from a permission to plead her cause that way, opposite inferences to what might be wished by those who grant it. As to the possibility of her filling with grace and dignity any such position, we should think those who had seen the great actresses, and heard the Quaker preachers of modern times, would not doubt that woman can express publicly the fullness of thought and creation, without losing any of the peculiar beauty of her sex. What can pollute and tarnish is to act thus from any motive except that something needs to be said or done. Woman could take part in the processions, the songs, the dances of old religion. No one fancied her delicacy was impaired by appearing in public for such a cause. As to her home, she is not likely to leave it more than she now does for balls, theatres, meetings for promoting missions, revival meetings, and others to which she flies, in hope of an animation for her existence commensurate with what she sees enjoyed by men. Governors of ladies' fairs are no less engrossed by such a charge than the governor of a state by his. Presidents of Washingtonian societies no less away from home than presidents of conventions. If men look straightly to it, they will find that, unless their lives are domestic, those of the women will not be. A house is no home unless it contain food and fire for the mind as well as for the body. The female Greek of our day is as much in the street as the male to cry, What news? We doubt not it was the same in Athens of old. The women, shut out from the market-place, made up for it at the religious festivals. For human beings are not so constituted that they can live without expansion. If they do not get it in one way, they must in another, or perish. As to men's representing women fairly at present, while we hear from men who owe to their wives not only all that is comfortable or graceful, but all that is wise in the arrangement of their lives, the frequent remark, you cannot reason with a woman, when from those of delicacy, nobleness, and poetic culture, falls the contemptuous phrase, women and children, and that in no light sally of the hour, but in works intended to give a permanent statement of the best experiences, when not one man in the million shall I say, no, not in the hundred million, can rise above the belief that woman was made for man, when such traits as these are daily forced upon the attention, can we feel that man will always do justice to the interests of woman? Can we think that he takes a sufficiently discerning and religious view of her office and destiny ever to do her justice, except when prompted by sentiment, accidentally or transiently, that is, for the sentiment will vary according to the relations in which he is placed? The lover, the poet, the artist are likely to view her nobly. The father and the philosopher have some chance of liberality. The man of the world, the legislator for expediency, none. Under these circumstances, without attaching importance in themselves to the changes demanded by the champions of woman, we hail them as signs of the times. We would have every arbitrary barrier thrown down. We would have every path laid open to woman as freely as to man. Were this done, and a slight temporary fermentation allowed to subside, we should see crystallizations more pure and of more various beauty. We believe the divine energy would pervade nature to a degree unknown in the history of former ages, 
and that no discordant collision, but a ravishing harmony of the spheres would ensue. Yet then and only then will mankind be ripe for this, when inward and outward freedom for woman as much as for man shall be acknowledged as a right, not yielded as a concession. As the friend of the negro assumes that one man cannot by right hold another in bondage, so should the friend of woman assume that man cannot by right lay even well-meant restrictions on woman. If the negro be a soul, if the woman be a soul apparelled in flesh, to one master only are they accountable. There is but one law for souls, and if there is to be an interpreter of it, he must come not as man or son of man, but as son of God. Were thought and feeling once so far elevated that man should esteem himself the brother and friend, but nowise the lord and tutor of woman, were he really bound with her in equal worship, arrangements as to function and employment would be of no consequence. What woman needs is not as a woman to act or rule, but as a nature to grow, as an intellect to discern, as a soul to live freely and unimpeded, to unfold such powers as were given her when we left our common home. If fewer talents were given her, yet if allowed the free and full employment of these, so that she may render back to the giver his own with usury, she will not complain. Nay, I dare to say she will bless and rejoice in her earthly birthplace, her earthly lot. Let us consider what obstructions impede this good era, and what signs give reason to hope that it draws near. I was talking on this subject with Miranda, a woman, who, if any in the world could, might speak without heat and bitterness of the position of her sex. Her father was a man who cherished no sentimental reverence for woman, but a firm belief in the equality of the sexes. She was his eldest child, and came to him at an age when he needed a companion. From the time she could speak and go alone, he addressed her not as a plaything, but as a living mind. Among the few verses he ever wrote was a copy addressed to this child, when the first locks were cut from her head, and the reverence expressed on this occasion for that cherished head he never belied. It was to him the temple of immortal intellect. He respected his child, however, too much to be an indulgent parent. He called on her for clear judgment, for courage, for honour and fidelity, in short for such virtues as he knew. In so far as he possessed the keys to the wonder of this universe, he allowed free use of them to her, and by the incentive of a high expectation, he forbade, so far as possible, that she should let the privilege lie idle. Thus this child was early led to feel herself a child of the spirit. She took her place easily, not only in the world of organized being, but in the world of mind. A dignified sense of self-dependence was given as all her portion, and she found it a sure anchor. Herself securely anchored, her relations with others were established with equal security. She was fortunate in a total absence of those charms which might have drawn to her bewildering flatteries, and in a strong electric nature, which repelled those who did not belong to her, and attracted those who did. With men and women her relations were noble, affectionate without passion, intellectual without coldness. The world was free to her, and she lived freely in it. Outward adversity came, and inward conflict but that faith and self-respect had early been awakened which must always lead at last to an outward serenity and an inward peace. Of Miranda I had always thought as an example, that the restraints upon the sex were insuperable only to those who think them so, or who noisily strive to break them. She had taken a course of her own, and no man stood in her way. Many of her acts had been unusual, but excited no uproar. 
Few helped, but none checked her. And the many men who knew her mind and her life showed to her confidence as to a brother, gentleness as to a sister. And not only refined, but very coarse men approved and aided one in whom they saw resolution and clearness of design. Her mind was often the leading one, always effective. When I talked with her upon these matters, and had said very much what I have written, she smilingly replied, "'And yet we must admit that I have been fortunate, and this should not be. My good father's early trust gave the first bias, and the rest followed, of course. It is true that I have had less outward aid in after years than most women, but that is of little consequence. Religion was early awakened in my soul, a sense that what the soul is capable to ask it must attain, and that, though I might be aided and instructed by others, I must depend on myself as the only constant friend. This self-dependence which was honoured in me is deprecated as a fault in most women. They are taught to learn their rule from without, not to unfold it from within. This is the fault of man, who is still vain, and wishes to be more important to woman than by right he should be. "'Men have not shown this disposition toward you,' I said. "'No, because the position I early was enabled to take was one of self-reliance. And were all women as sure of their wants as I was, the result would be the same. But they are so overloaded with precepts by guardians, who think that nothing is so much to be dreaded for a woman as originality of thought or character, that their minds are impeded by doubts till they lose their chance of fair, free proportions. The difficulty is to get them to the point from which they shall naturally develop self-respect, and learn self-help. Once I thought that men would help to forward this state of things more than I do now. I saw so many of them wretched in the connections they had formed in weakness and vanity. They seemed so glad to esteem women whenever they could. The soft arms of affection, said one of the most discerning spirits, will not suffice for me, unless on them I see the steel bracelets of strength. But early I perceived that men never in any extreme of despair wished to be women. On the contrary, they were ever ready to taunt one another at any sign of weakness with, Art thou not like the women? This passage ends various ways, according to the occasion and the rhetoric of the speaker. When they admired any woman they were inclined to speak of her as above her sex. Silently I observed this, and feared it argued a rooted scepticism, which for ages had been fastening on the heart, and which only an age of miracles could eradicate. Ever I have been treated with great sincerity, and I look upon it as a signal instance of this, that an intimate friend of the other sex said, in a fervent moment, that I deserved in some star to be a man. He was much surprised when I disclosed my view of my position and hopes, when I declared my faith that the feminine side, the side of love, of beauty, of holiness, was now to have its full chance, and that if either were better, it was better now to be a woman, for even the slightest achievement of good was furthering an especial work of our time. He smiled incredulously. She makes the best she can of it, thought he. Let Jews believe the pride of Jewry, but I am of the better sort, and no better." Another used as highest praise in speaking of a character in literature, the words, a manly woman. So in the noble passage of Ben Jonson. I meant the day-star should not brighter ride, nor shed like influence from its loosened seat. I meant she should be courteous, facile, sweet, free from that solemn vice of greatness, pride. I meant each softest virtue there should meet, fit in that softer bosom to abide. 
only a learned and a manly soul I purposed her that should with even powers the rock, the spindle, and the shears control, of destiny, and spin her own free hours. Methinks, said I, you are too fastidious in objecting to this. Johnson, in using the word manly, only meant to heighten the picture of this, the true, the intelligent fate, with one of the deeper colours. And yet, said she, so invariable is the use of this word where a heroic quality is to be described, and I feel so sure that persistence and courage are the most womanly no less than the most manly qualities, that I would exchange these words for others of a larger sense, at the risk of marring the fine tissue of the verse. Read, a heavenward and instructed soul, and I should be satisfied. Let it not be said, wherever there is energy or creative genius, she has a masculine mind. End of section 4